What up, everyone? Welcome back to our lovely podcast. I'm Anna. And I'm Emily. And this is Murder's Night Out. Whoop, whoop. Woohoo. All right, guys. Welcome back. Um, I just want to start off by saying I hope everybody had a happy Valentine's Day or in the Dark Souls world, happy Valentine's Day. Wahahaha. Did you have a good Valentine's Day? I didn't do shit. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, I say it was awesome. My husband was kind of sick, Aww. but you know, men and their man colds. So yeah, I'm just kidding. He actually had a fever. So oh yeah, you Can't know, a little the little 48 hour bug that kept going around. Oh, <laughs> What'd you do for Valentine's Day? So I worked, but um, you know, came home. I was pleasantly surprised. Usually Mitch and I, we aren't very mushy gushy. And he came home. He said he was working on his brakes on his truck, but came home, brought home a shit ton of flowers. <gasps> yes. Aww. So, super sweet. Um, that it, is. So. So mushy. <laughs> <laughs> it was sweet. Ah, uh, yeah, that is sweet. I'm not gonna lie. That's really cute. I got surprised with Vans just now as yes. uh, we don't get each other like Valentine's Day presents because we've just never really gotten each other anything on like spe specified holidays for gifts. But he just came home and surprised me with some Vans. I was like, oh, it was the cutest thing. I know. I know. Yeah. My uh, off brand knockoff Vans <laughs> had uh, bit the dust the other day and I was really upset because I'm not a heels or you know, fancy shoe kind of person. Except I'm definitely for, boots. Right. Boots, my docs. My docs or my Converse. Yep. Yeah. And so I was really, because I wore them all the time and I was real, I was real sad about it, but yeah, I got a surprise on that. So that was exciting. Um, I also, I also want to just say, holy shit. Holy crap. You guys are amazing. The fact, you know, we started this just this past weekend and, you know, we released just a regular intro episode, just kind of introducing ourselves, putting some feelers out there. And then I got so excited. You know, I said that in the last episode and I, that we released, you know, the first part of the two parter that we're going to finish today. And I hadn't planned to I would have done part two if I would have known it was going to take off as crazy as it did like holy crap you guys are amazing I know and I'm constantly every day getting text messages from friends that are saying oh we're listening to you guys today y'all are awesome so we really appreciate that and so thanks yeah I mean <laughs> I never you know we are just starting out and but the feedback that we got and you know you guys are just absolutely fucking amazing like really amazing so Oh, by the way, so speaking of Valentine's Day, I finally brought your Christmas gift over. Oh, my God. So my love language is gift giving. That's just what I do. So if you're a friend of mine and I, I give you things, don't feel bad. I'm just, that's my love language. I like giving gifts. Okay, and I'm a anyway. and I'm a shitty person. No, you're not. First of all, these are my snacks. You can't have those. Uh, bitch, how you going to bring some damn snacks and say uh, well, I can't okay, have them? So I didn't want to bring several bags. So I just shoved my snacks into your bag. I might be stealing some of those later. That's fine. Okay, see, so now you have to open them up and tell everybody what. <laughs> I'm sorry if that was really loud in your ears. This heifer, she knows me. She done brought some old smoky moonshine. <laughs> I always say my... my Anna's love language is moonshine. Well, <laughs> that and I always say my ideal uh, day or my ideal experience, or and I've actually done it several times, my ideal, I guess, vacation is a staycation and it's moonshine and true crime. <laughs> well, I might be drinking this on this episode, so I par pardon me if I get a little slurry. <laughs> Anyways, now that we got that out of our, our system... There is really no way to yeah, transition. transition into this horrific case. All right, guys. So where we last left off 
was CJ, the nine-year-old survivor, had just woken up in the hospital and the nurses called the police to come down there to get a story. Um, and then just to reiterate, I just want to say again, this superhuman fucking child survived. Yeah, it's a miracle. Yeah. Absolutely a miracle. And then also important to note that the remaining Dotson family were in the safe house um, due to the fear of the gang retaliation. So they, the police had put them there after the whole door incident where Miss Shaw had come home and, and saw her door was kicked in. Yeah. So that brings us to where we're at today or at the pivotal point in this case, really. So on March the 7th, 2008, uh, police arrived at Laboner's Children's Hospital to interview CJ, uh, the nine-year-old, like I said, to, you know, see what he knows, basically. You're looking at me crazy like... I'm ready to know. <laughs> Tell me before I strangle you. Don't do that. I'm going to end up you're on gonna the be, You're going to be the subject of a podcast if you do that. CJ told police that Uncle Junior was the person responsible knew it. for the slaughter of his entire family. I knew it. I knew it. Fucking bomb. Keep in mind what's so shocking about this. Is, is he in the safe house? I he's can't in the fucking safe house. Oh my God. He's in the fucking safe house because they were led to believe through interviews that a gang was responsible yeah. for this massive slaughter. Mm. So this motherfucking demon is in protective custody with the police. That being said, I guess it's kind of a good thing that in a in a way kind of hey, a good at thing. Least they could watch him and make sure he didn't run. Well, they knew immediately where he was, so it made it easy yeah. to track him down. Track and him down him and whatnot. Right. So after Lieutenant Mason learned this, she immediately called Deputy Director uh, Armstrong of the Memphis Police Department. I can't speak. Tongue tied. Uh, she immediately called Deputy Director Armstrong to inform him of what she had learned. After he got off, or before he got off the phone, he instructed her not to tell anybody until he had had a chance to listen to the tape recording. After listening, obviously, Jesse Dotson Jr. was immediately transported from the safe house that they were being kept in to the Homicide Bureau. Yeah. And for obvious reasons, he was under arrest at this point. Because right. initially, when they initially talked to him, remember, he was just brought in as a potential witness. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, safe house and all of that. I can't remember. Did he have an alibi? Um, I didn't know if they had he, initially. Yes. So he had told him that, you know, they went all of these different places and that he departed ways with uh, oh, the trio right. around yeah. 215, 230 when he was dropped off at his Sheila's, house. Sheila Jones's, which was his girlfriend's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they fought and all that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then he was in bed at 5 a.m. Yeah. He's under arrest at this point. He was Mirandized. He signed a written waiver and agreed to speak with officers. Lieutenant Mason, uh, Caroline Mason, and then Sergeant James Terry Max were assigned to interview him. Of course, during this interview, he reiterated the drive to purchase marijuana, the stops that they made, and, you know, everything he basically said in his initial interview, in which, like I said before, if you want to read this case in detail, you are more than welcome to. I'm going to, I apologize, but I didn't want to put it in the last show notes because I wanted to wait, but I'll put the court case documents, it, the link to it in the show notes so that if you want to read this in complete detail, you can. There's a lot of information. And if I went over every single thing, this would be 10 episodes. So there's a lot of information. But uh, Jesse Dotson Jr., he reiterated what he told police the, the day of his initial interview, how he was dropped off, he didn't see them again, and blah, 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 all yeah. of that stuff. Well, one thing he did add to the interview is that at one of the stops, he added 
that Cecil had, his brother, had introduced him to a group of men that they were buying the marijuana from as, I quote, quote, his bitch-ass brother who just got out of prison. Oh. Prison, you say? So, to add to all of this, remember how he was staying with his sister Nicole? Yeah. Just a little under seven months before this grisly attack, uh, Junior, Jesse Dawson Jr., was paroled and released from prison in August 2007 after serving 14 years on an 18-year sentence for second-degree murder charge in a drug deal gone wrong. So this isn't his first time? No. Clearly. Second-degree murder charge. In the shooting death. And they didn't think, hmm. Yes. So, we are already... Do we have a motive? Yeah, I'm going to get there. You okay, ask, I've got all these questions. You, you asking the questions. You asking the questions. Which I like questions. Ask away. Asking all these questions. Asking all these questions. Making statements. Us women. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Sorry. This is not funny. <clears throat> Serious face. No, this case is terrible, but continue. Like I said, dark humor. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so (laughs) during his interview, you know, like I said, he maintained that he never returned to the Lester Street home and he was dropped off at Sheila's apartment around 2.15. And at one point, Mason and Max, Lieutenant Mason and Sergeant Max weren't really getting anywhere. So eventually after... Deputy Director Armstrong was watching the interview through the two-way mirror or one-way mirror, one-way glass. I can't speak. And so eventually he entered the room to do the interview. Uh, At first, uh, Jesse Jr. was only given like one or two answers. One or two, one or two word answers wasn't really open to having open dialogue and Armstrong noted that he, quote, seemed really, really tight, like he was doing everything he could not to talk to me. He began going over all of the horrific details and, you know, going through the crime scene. And he also said something along the lines of it seemed like he was doing everything he could not to talk and that he was hiding something. Eventually, throughout this, Now, keep in mind, they have the recording of CJ. So, eventually, Armstrong asked what uh, Jesse Jr.'s family called him. Jr. replied, Jr. Uh, Armstrong asked if anyone else in the family was referred to as Jr. or if that anybody in his family would ever confuse the name Jr. with someone else Mm -hmm. in his family. Jesse said no. And then he proceeded to ask, Armstrong proceeded to ask if someone used the name, if anybody else used the name Junior in his family, would they be referring to him? Or if anybody said, hey, reference to the name Junior, would they be referring to him as in Jesse Dotson Junior? Jesse said yes. In a motherfucking mic drop, boom shakalaka, Armstrong pulled out the tape recording of CJ in the hospital where he stated that Uncle Junior was responsible for this slaughter. Speechless. Mic drop. Got him. This wet piece of soggy, mildewed cow dung. (laughs) I don't really know. Um, Of course, the tears started flowing and so did a different story. And so did a different story come with those tears. Mm -hmm. Get the fuck out of here with that. Those tears. Um, Jesse Jr. said he and Cecil went to get a gun on the way back. They began arguing and continued to argue the whole way back to the home on Lester street. Uh, Once they returned home, the argument had escalated. Cecil allegedly reached for reached for a shotgun and Junior just began shooting. And then when asked about 
the children, he said he attempted to, quote, get rid, like they're fucking pieces of garbage. He attempted to, quote unquote, get rid of the children because they saw him and he, quote, stuck them, quote, unquote, stuck them using knives from the kitchen drawer. Trying to get rid of any witnesses. Like, what the fuck? Like a two-month-old is going to remember. Dude. Ugh. It's... That's horrific. Man, it's... I'm so, like... I was so angry when I was reading this. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Anyways, after that, Armstrong attempted to question him in further detail, but then at that point, Jesse had asked for an attorney and then to see his mother, so Armstrong ceased the interview. On the early hours of March 8th, or during the early hours of March 8th, uh, Jesse Jr.'s mom, Priscilla, was brought from the safe house to the police station, and she, where she was brought into the interview room. Uh, he confessed to her as well. He went over, he said, he did it. Um, at first she was trying to say, what are they trying to pin on you? And he eventually admitted to her with nobody else in the interview room that he did it and that he alone was the one responsible. And that when he asked how he got away, or I guess at some point he said he rode away from the scene on a bicycle to his girlfriend's home. And this is really fucking sad. When she asked the babies why the babies this motherfucker didn't say shit all he did was shake his head you yeah insert every single despicable description here yeah and you're you're too big of a coward to say anything yeah all he could what all he could do was shake his head after that, um, as any mother would, I uh, would say, as any mother would do, I mean, this is pretty fucking horrific. Uh, she prote- ugh, she proceeded to tell him that she loved him and then got up and left. Hmm. And then on March the 8th, Jesse Dotson Jr. was officially charged for this grisly ass attack. His trial began in September of 2010. Uh, The jury was selected from Nashville in an attempt to get, you know, an unbiased jury because this was, this case took the media by storm. It was on the first 48 and that was, you know, everybody knew about this case. So in an attempt to get, you know, an unbiased fair trial, they got the jury from Nashville when testimony began one of the one of the people testifying was Kiera which was Sheila Jones's daughter the one that he had said he had gotten into an argument gotten with. into an argument with and all of that so she testified that Cecil and Jesse Jr and yeah Cecil and Jesse Jr had arrived at her home around 10 or 10:30 on March the 1st and they had appeared intoxicated. She also stated that they did not return until about 3 or 4.30 a.m. And she had noticed the next... So, she, ugh, I can't speak. So, she testified that they did not return until about 3 or 4.30 a.m. And he was trying to talk to her. But she said that he would talk to her later or that she would talk to him later and she went to go lay um, her child down and never came out of the room. She also said that when she was in the room, she heard the bathroom, like water running in the bathroom. And that, that was, that was it basically. And so later that day that Jesse Jr. and Sheila, which is her mom left together the next morning After they left, she said that she noticed some bleach spots on the brown rug in the bathroom. Mm. Sheila uh, Jones, his girlfriend, 
had testified that Junior was in her bed around 5 5 a.m. when she returned home the morning on March the 2nd. And when they left around 10.30 a.m. later that day, she had dropped him off at his sister Nicole's apartment where he was living at the time. Now, Willie Boyd Hill, the man that they later identified as Frank, one of the first stops that they took the night of, he also testified. He said that Junior Hollis Seals and Cecil arrived at his apartment around 10 or 10.30 that night and 10 or 10.30 that night on the 1st and retrieved a pistol, thirty eight caliber. Hmm. And that's that Seals had left there. Now, remember, I just wanted to point out this one thing. You know, Junior in his initial testimony said that Seals didn't arrive to the Lester Street home until around 10 or 1030. So one thing is maybe some people see that as conflicting, but I do want to say it is possible that both of those could be true because I looked up the directions or I looked up on Google Maps how long it would take to get from the Lester Street home to to the apartments that were located at Highland and Spotswood, nine minutes. Yeah. So if he yeah. arrived at 10, 1030, and say they arrived at 10, and then they immediately left, it is possible for that, that to be, have occurred. Yeah. yeah. Now, Nicole, his sister, was also a uh, witness and also testified. Um, she testified that Junior moved in after his release from prison And that she was too scared of him to ask him to leave. Um, She also continued to explain that Junior had a grudge towards his family because apparently when he was in prison, they didn't visit him often enough. I couldn't find the amount of times they visited, but I think it was only like once or twice. Yeah. So he held that grudge and apparently. I (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, literally secondary murder. Come on now. Yeah, that's a that's a rough one. Um, and apparently he made it very well known that he held this grudge. She said that he expressed that grudge daily. She also continued saying that on the morning of March the 2nd that she only briefly saw Junior and Sheila and it was outside her apartment around 10 or 11. Um, she said that they never came inside her apartment And when she did see them, they were having a physical altercation in the front front seat of Sheila's car. She said that they, I know I just said this, but that they never came inside her apartment. And then they left again. He left with Sheila and did not return until later that evening. Which conflicts with what Sheila said. Because Sheila said she dropped him off. and Didn't see him. Right. And then Nicole is saying that he never came in. And yes, she did see him in the parking lot Mm -hmm. or in front of the apartment, but then they left again. So next up was CJ, Cecil Dotson Jr., the nine-year-old. Yeah. The one with the fucking knife in his head. Yeah. That overcomes so many obstacles. Dude, he's fucking superhuman is all I'm saying. Um, remember, he is nine at the time, and his trial, and this trial took place two years later. So he's, he's only like 11, yeah. 12 at the most. Which is the pretty much the same age as our children. I mean, could you fucking imagine? Ugh, this poor kid. Now, later on in the story, we will, you'll realize that the prosecution really relied heavily on C.J., CJ's testimony and Junior's admission of guilt. Yeah. So on the night of the attacks, he said he was watching TV in his sister's room because his wasn't working. So he was in there, you know, just minding his own business. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he heard a gunshot. That would scare the shit out of anybody. And, you know, he's nine. And we're in Memphis. (laughs) Mind that we are in Memphis. Well, not only that, but I mean, you hear something loud. So right. he heard this gunshot and he walked out into the hallway. Yeah. And he said that he had peeked into the living room and, quote, 
saw my uncle junior point a gun toward my daddy and then also stated he saw quote some smoke and sparks come out of the gun and then looked down on the ground and saw a dude on the floor end quote who was wearing a black shirt and black pants he then heard another gunshot he said he he cj said that he saw his uncle shooting a woman that he cj did not recognize that was sitting on the arm of the couch he stated and this is really fucking sad he stated that the woman was telling junior that she loved him but that jesse junior quote just kept on shooting so his ass hightailed it back to the bedroom yeah Yeah. he said as he was sitting there he said that he had heard footsteps and then he had turned around to see uncle junior holding a knife or holding a quote handled knife (sighs) he said that after his uncle had cut him on his neck Oh, this one, like, I, this next part, like, I really honestly started tearing up when I was reading this because this, this broke and shattered my heart into a trillion pieces. (sighs) He said that after Junior, his uncle, had cut him on his neck, he told his uncle that he loved him, and Junior replied, No, you don't. Mm. Just a second. (laughs) CJ then laid down on the bed. And at that point, Cecil Dotson II, the two-year-old, had began crying. CJ said that he heard his uncle say to little Cecil II, quote, don't worry about it. You ain't going to get hurt. CJ said he tried to retrieve the phone. He tried to leave the bedroom and retrieve the phone in the hallway to call the police when he was stopped by his uncle. His uncle had asked, what are you doing? And CJ told him he was going to call the police. And Junior told him, Jesse Junior told him that he would kill CJ's parents and Cecil's friends if he called the police. He then proceeded to ask junior if he could go to the bathroom and noticed that junior had a kitchen quote-unquote kitchen knife in his hand junior let cj go to the bathroom but jesse junior had followed him to the bathroom and quote made him put his head in the tub when cj complied he said junior tried to stab him in the chest but when CJ put his hand up to block, the knife actually went into his head. Yeah. CJ also began to recall that his mom, Marissa, Marissa Williams. Yeah. Ugh, this one kills me, too. His mom was in the doorway of the bathroom saying she didn't want to die. Junior, Jesse Jr. proceeded to, and this is still all CJ's testimony. Uh, Jesse Jr. proceeded to ask Marissa for his brother Cecil Dotson Sr.'s cell phone and car keys. She said that the keys were likely in his brother's car. And then he, CJ stated in his testimony that he heard his uncle say to his mom, quote, sorry because I ain't let your husband or your husband's friends, get away with it, and the kids, end quote. And then after that, CJ heard what he described as a, quote, huge fall to the ground, end quote. So while CJ's in the bathroom, remember the bathroom is in the hallway, so if you're in there, you have a limited line of sight of the hallway, but you can see things or people walking down the hallway, CJ said he saw his uncle Junior walking in the hallway with a garbage bag and another kitchen knife heading to CJ's sister's room. He had heard someone yelling and then he heard his uncle say, shut up. He heard his four-year-old brother, Samario, ask to use the bathroom. And it, and said, he said, that he saw blood dripping from Samario's head 
onto the rim of the toilet seat. Samario so had then asked his uncle to return to his room and his uncle let him. And then CJ said his uncle Jr. went into the kitchen for another knife. And then after that, went into the room where Samario so was lying on the bed and that his uncle proceeded to stab Samario and Samario fell onto the floor. And then after that, CJ's kind of drifting off, I guess you could say. He said he heard, quote unquote, rambling in the hallway like somebody was trying to move something. And then the next thing CJ knows is he had fallen asleep at some point and woke up to firefighters. So CJ also uh, acknowledged and testified about his previous interview that he had given with Miss Pat, quote, unquote, Miss Pat, which was Pat Lewis from the Child Advocacy Center that went with Lieutenant Caroline Mason to interview him, you know, when he, when he was went at, when he was at La Bonner. Yeah. And before he gave his official interview with the police that March the 7th. So anyways, so he all, he testified about his uh, previous interview, how he had told quote unquote, Miss Pat in a previous interview that on the same night that the quote, bad thing happened and quote, a woman named Cassandra. Remember yeah. when he was in the hospital, yeah. he was saying Cassandra, Cassandra. And, and they, you know, initially, ruled it out and anyways that a woman named Cassandra knocked on the door and said that she needed to use the bathroom she and some other people including a man wearing a mask with quote a little bit of blood quote on it entered the house um he continued saying he had never seen the man before but that he had recalled Cecil referring to the man as quote Roderick End quote. He continued saying that he did not recall who allowed Roderick to enter the house, although he had acknowledged that he had previously told, quote, Miss Pat that Cecil allowed Roderick to enter the house and that he was mad at Cecil for doing so. So CJ, man, they so loud with that door. I'm sorry if y'all hear the door in the background. Once again, we're <laughs> in a closet. In my closet. And so my closet does like this L shape. Not that y'all need to know, but you know, I'm just giving backstory here. Um, enters, <laughs> leaves my bathroom and goes through the laundry room, which is right next to the garage door that everybody comes in and out. So I apologize if you hear some uh Banging. doors slamming. People people don't know how to use doors around here, apparently. We're just slamming shit. Okay. So Roderick. Roderick, yes. Yeah. Uh, that he was... So CJ testified that Roderick said something to Cecil about the gang and also told Cecil, as in Cecil Sr., quote, you got too big, boy, end quote. According to CJ, Roderick fired a gun at Cecil and said, quote, never stop playing with the gang boy. You never know what would happen, boy, end quote. This was, just to reiterate, this was the initial interview that CJ had given Pat Lewis in the hospital when, you know, everything was happening and, you know, he was yelling out those names and wasn't exactly making sense, which is why they brought pat lewis in to begin with so and it's a very dramatic event very traumatizing as a kid and you know your body in general is like its coping mechanism is to shut down well let's not so, forget the fact that he had a fucking knife in his head right exactly so a, this kid this had guy, a fucking knife in his head bleeding out in a bathtub because this happened Let's remember, this happened, like, early hours, supposedly, of March the 2nd. Yeah. They weren't discovered until later in the evening on March the 3rd. Right. So, over 24 hours, this kid had a fucking knife 
in his head on redirect examination uh cj once again identified jesse dawson jr as the person who stabbed him in the head shot his parents and their friends and that hurt his baby brothers and baby sister and then on cross re-examination cj testified that he saw the fight or saw a fight in the living room between cecil and the man in the mask and again maintained that the man was shooting at cecil he also agreed that he had met miss caroline which was lieutenant caroline mason the one that was assigned to interview him when this whole process began at labonner that he had met with miss caroline and miss pat at miss pat's office and had said when they asked him how he knew some of the things he told them he said that his quote you ready for this no his quote granny had told him what so so miss priscilla are we talking about priscilla it doesn't it doesn't really okay stay but since i would i would assume that's who they're talking about i try not to assume but it doesn't really mention Marissa, or not that I can find, unless I just completely looked over it. It doesn't really when mention he... Marissa Williams' mom, which was his, which was CJ's mother. Yeah. The fact that he said that, it's almost like that specific testimony or that specific interview. Right. Is and hard you know, when you to... work with kids, mm-hmm. you want to ask specific direct questions. You never want to ask leading questions mm-hmm. because they are going to answer how you would like to be answered. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, at this trial, he's only 11 or 12. I know I said that earlier, but just yeah. saying again, so, I'm glad you said that. So I'm just saying, like... I'm glad you said that because that's going to come into play later. Okay. So Cedric... The other surviving child also ended up testifying. Cedric, at the time, he was five. He was five. Yeah, he was the five-year-old. So he is seven-ish, seven-ish. It, you know, oh, I'm sorry. It says he was eight. He was eight at the time. That's like younger than my oldest child. Yeah. His testimony, I want to say, is a little confusing. I would definitely recommend going, sorry if you hear the, my makeshift uh, table here squeak. <laughs> um, I would definitely recommend going to read the court documents because I think that'll give a better picture. To me, it was a little confusing. You know, he was only five at the time. Now, this is a traumatic ass experience, so I'm not discounting his testimony, but definitely read the court documents ultimately he did not recall hearing gunshots that night and he did not recall seeing the defendant shoot anyone he also said that although he had not seen the defendant jesse jr stabbing his parents he recalled that his parents and their friends were stabbed cedric said that when his parents were killed all of all of the children, other than one of his brothers and the baby, were locked in his sister's bedroom. He also stated that his brother had told him that his Miss Williams, which was their mom, was injured while she was in the living room changing the baby. But something interesting to note, uh, Cedric also testified that he heard Miss Smith, Erica Smith, the one who was outside the house waiting on the police yeah uh he he testified that he had heard miss smith on the phone calling the police and he recalled that nicole whom he referred to as quote auntie foxy was also present when they were attacked he also he acknowledged you know telling miss pat and telling miss pat and cj that his father should have never opened the door he went on to you know Well, another thing interesting to note is that he he claims to remember, or Cedric also remembered CJ sneaking out of the house after 
the defendant, Uncle Jesse, stabbed him and riding on his bicycle to his grandmother's home. Cedric testified that he sneaked up on his, quote, Uncle Jesse, got his own bike, and also rode away to his grandmother's home. Cedric recalled that when he and CJ left, everyone was still alive in the house and were talking and singing and having fun. This is why, I mean, there's still some more. But right, this is, and he was five at the time. He's not going to remember. Seven, he's eight at this time, too. Right. If you've ever worked around eight-year-olds, you know, they have a very elaborate yeah. and imaginative imaginative way of describing things like i said i'm not discounting his testimony but yeah i think maybe that might have been his way of coping with things because remember right. cj was found in a bathtub yeah with a knife in his head yeah as it was a traumatic as experience five years old and then he's eight years old in front of right. a courtroom in front of all these people because media was there this was a media fucking circus but one thing to know, and this know- was in 2010, so that was like 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. So this kid, I mean, he's, I don't know, 21 now. My math's not mathing right now. I do math for a living, so girlfriend eight plus 13 is 21. <laughs> okay, I'm okay. an accountant. I should like be able to answer that, but that's what Excel's for. Thank you, technology. I want to say, yeah, Mr. White. Yeah, science. You know, Breaking Bad. It is. It's. Yeah, it's 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm over here just Wait, making it's... sure. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. 8 plus 13 is 21. Look, I know, 21. but I was trying to think. <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> I had to think about it, too. Cool. <laughs> Sorry. Mathing ain't mathing, guys. guys. I'm tired. It's like 7 o'clock and we're in a fucking closet. With Cedric's uh, testimony, he never wavered on who was responsible for this horrible attack. Horrible attack. Um, They both identified, ultimately, that Jesse Dotson Jr. was, you know, the attacker. Now... In the state's testimony, and they had a couple of expert witnesses. One of them was uh, Shelby County Medical Exam- Examiner, Dr. Lisa Fonte. Oh, I'm fixing to fuck this name up. F-U-N-T-E. Fonte? Fonte? Fonte. I am so sorry. Fonte. Fonte. Okay. Fun- I probably should have looked up the... Fonte. Fonte. I don't know. <laughs> I probably should have looked up the the pronunciation okay. on that one. Anyways, so Dr. I'm just going to call her Dr. Lisa. That sounds beautiful. Um, Dr. Lisa went into greater detail about the injuries the deceased victims had sustained. I'm not going to go into that detail because it truly is horrific. And if you would like to read it, then you are more than welcome to. But they were horrible. So the state also had special agent Lawrence James, who was a forensic scientist with the TBI and as one of their expert witnesses. He had testified that he had taken a numerous amount of blood samples and analyzed them all from the house. And each of those blood samples matched one or multiple, I guess it wouldn't match multiples, but the blood samples matched, all of the blood samples matched victims in the house, but none of them matched the defendant. A partial DNA profile he obtained from a bullet fragment recovered from the sofa in the living room, uh, he testified was consistent with a male, and Cecil could not be excluded as the contributor. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but some of the evidence that they pulled from the crime scene were some green beads that matched beads that were in Samario's hair, you know. Yeah, were they? They, because of the injuries he had suffered, some of them came off. Anyways, they obtained those beads, and he said that he had swabbed all of the green beans 
green beans. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm fucking this up, guys. <laughs> this is not funny. <laughs> Could you imagine some green beans out of his hand? I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not hell. <laughs> Buy me a VIP pass. Look, this is the demons behind me. That's my bracelet, man. I, I got love that it. From, I found it. It's fucking mine. I have two of them. I'll give you one. You can have that one. I, I just, okay. Okay, but it was funny. Where'd you get it and what's the story? I got it we'll from some it random girl at the Louder Than Life music festival I went to. She gave it to me. Oh, I like it. I know. I like demons behind me. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> Agent James testified that he had swabbed all of the green beads recovered from the scene, but the sample produced only a partial profile, which was consistent with male DNA, but it did not match any of the victims or the defendant, Jesse James jr interesting Mm -hmm. also interesting to note that the defendant's pants that he was wearing were um, seized during you know following his arrest and the blood on the pants that they found only matched jesse dotson jr's dna profile it did not match any of the victims Oh, wow. He also said that he did not find any of Jesse Jr.'s DNA on the knife blades, the knife handles, the victim's bodies, the wood boards, the glass, the pillows, the shotgun, the shell casing, or the shoes. And then that the analysis from the scrapings under Miss Robinson, Shindry Robinson's nails. Uh, yielded a DNA profile of an unknown female. Oh. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, no, so no, <clears throat> ultimately, like I said earlier, you know, the prosecution ended up relying heavily on CJ's testimony and the uh, Jesse Jr.'s confessions not only to Deputy Armstrong, but to his mom. Because, spoiler alert, from what I read, there was no forensic evidence that tied him to wow. the scene. Well, now his admittance. Yeah, which we'll get into that. So, with all of that, um, the defense, one of their expert witnesses was Dr... Nancy Aldridge, who was a psychotherapist and expert in forensic evaluation of children. She, um, and this is, you know, like I said, one of the points of contention with the interviews with the children. Yeah. Um, she, in her testimony, she explained the protocol for conducting a forensic interview of a child and expressed her concerns about the manner in which CJ and Cedric's interviews were conducted. Her concerns included the fact that CJ was interviewed shortly after being discovered and that he was interviewed on four or five occasions and that each one he gave different statements about to what had occurred. She also expressed concern that formal forensic interviews of children did not occur until August the 13th of 2008, which was more than five months after the incident explaining that given the time that had passed, the children had possibly been exposed to information from other family members about the crime. Now, going back to what you said earlier about asking questions with children, she also, Dr. Aldridge also explained that his original testimony about Cassandra could possibly be reliable and that children who are often questioned 
multiple times after already having provided an answer, the child may conclude that the initial answer wasn't acceptable and provide a different answer. Right. Next up was old piece of soggy, wet, cow, mildewed, poo-poo. Yeah. Next. Junior jackass. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Anyways. I mean, not going to lie, though, like the forensic evidence thing, it did kind of have me. Huh. Quite questioning. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. It is possible. There could be more than one person. I mean, yeah. So That's I can a lot say, of bodies. Can, you know what I'm saying? It is. It could be more That's than a one. lot of adults. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. It is. It is a lot of adults. And like I said, it, it definitely, because, you know, yesterday when I was going through this, and of course, at the beginning of this episode, I was like, this motherfucker. Blah, blah, blah. But I mean, the forensic evidence thing definitely has had has me scratching my head but i'm going to choose to believe the the children the children the survivors yeah because you know even though their statements kind of went back and forth you know but like dr aldridge said you know maybe they were searching for the right answer they never wavered on their identification of the perpetrator so to me that says a lot. It really does. Jesse Jr. was the final witness to his trial. He, you know, went through the events of that night and he said that when they got back, Cecil had asked Miss Williams, which was his fiance, to put clean sheets on the bed in the master bedroom, explaining that he had planned to allow. Mr. Seals and Miss Robinson to use the master bedroom because Miss Seals, Mr. Seals had also just been released from jail. Jesse stated that he volunteered to change, change the sheets and that he was in the master bedroom with a quilt in his hand when he heard two or three gunshots. He did acknowledge that he was carrying a blue 44 caliber handgun at the time, but when he had heard the screaming, he hid beneath the bed. The defendant claimed, and this is coming from those court case documents, Jesse claimed that he had heard only a few shots at first, followed by more shots just seconds later. He said he did not know whether the shots were fired from the same gun or different guns. He also stated that he remained hidden beneath the bed for several minutes because he heard other noises, which he later realized was the family dog, which he initially believed was someone walking around the bedroom where he was hiding. He said that he didn't, he was unable to hear what was going on in the other areas of the home, so he eventually left his hiding place and went into the living room. He said when he went to the living room, that's when he discovered the victim's bodies and believed that all in the house, including the children, were dead. He said that the front door was open and that he left the house on a bicycle he found behind a door in the living room. He he recalled riding the bike to Sheila, his girlfriend's apartment, where Kiera later allowed him to enter. He said that when he immediately went into Miss Jones's bathroom, and that's where he vomited. He said he used the bleach. The defend using the bleach. Um, he said he cleaned the vomit from the sink, but he had dropped some of the bleach on the floor. Bullshit. After brushing his teeth, he said he knocked on Kiera's bedroom door, telling her that he needed to talk, but then they never talked. I didn't get that. Did you try again? (sighs) Fuck you, Siri. Went on to say that he didn't report what he had seen because, quote, y'all done heard testimony about the gangs. I'm in a gang. We don't call the police. It's just that simple. We don't call the police. It's not part of what we do. If I call the police, I'll be just like my brother. He also admitted to not being truthful when he had told Mason and another sergeant that on March the 7th, he had driven Cecil or that Cecil had driven him back to the home after they listened to the basketball game. He further testified that 
before Deputy Director Armstrong interviewed him at the Homicide Bureau. He had been handcuffed to the table for hours. And that once Deputy Armstrong played the tape recording of CJ identifying him as the perpetrator. I'm sorry, I messed that one up. He said that Deputy Armstrong played a tape recording of CJ identifying him as the perpetrator, but didn't play earlier taped interviews of CJ identifying other individuals. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Your snacks. Long story short, he said that the director, that Armstrong was yelling at him and he had been handcuffed to the table for hours. He was tired and pressured into, pressured into admitting You know, guilt. I was kind of wondering that because of how long you were saying that they, he had been under, like, when they were interrogating him, how long he had been there. Because, I mean... That can come into play. I mean, it can. I'm not it for sure him. can. I'm just I mean, playing look, devil's advocate. Yeah, no, it for sure can. I mean, look at the West Memphis Three and how they treated Jesse Miss Kelly. Right. So you know, hours. I mean, that'll do something to somebody. I'm not, you know, saying that that happened or yeah, that didn't happen. Junior is an adult. Jesse was a teenager. Not to mention he was his IQ was quite low. Right. Not Jesse. We're talking about juniors. Oh, oh, are we talking about Jesse Miss Kelly or Jesse? That's what I was saying. Jesse was a teenager at the time of all of this. Oh, much. yeah, Jesse Miss Kelly. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. I was saying Junior was an adult. Yeah. Well. It's a little different. But anyway. <laughs> so he said that he finally admitted because Deputy Armstrong was yelling, saying he was, quote, sick of it and that Junior was, quote, bullshitting and that Armstrong began, quote, pounding the table and demanding to have answers now. Now, he acknowledged all of, he acknowledged telling Armstrong that Cecil had reached for a shotgun and that he started shooting. He acknowledged all of his, basically he acknowledged all of his statements in his arrest interview, but then later denied these statements at the trial, explaining that when he was interviewed on March the 7th, he had not slept since the homicides were discovered on March the 3rd and that he had been crying, he was depressed and all of that. Um, On cross-examination, he admitted that he, when he left Cecil's house on the bicycle, he believed all nine people inside the home were dead. He admitted to the fact that he did not call 911. Instead, he went to Sheila's home and went to bed. He admitted to not going to work the next day or reporting the crimes to anyone, although went to dinner with Mr. Waddell on Sunday, March the 2nd. Remember, when they went to dinner, Jesse Jr. asked Waddell if they wanted to go pick up Cecil. So this is where I'm thinking he's a lying sack of shit. Yeah. So, you know, he was playing it off like, you know, you want to go pick up Cecil? Right, right. And let his, I think it, his brother-in-law call Cecil numerous right. times. And, then and Cecil didn't answer. And Cecil and didn't yeah. answer. And so they were like, all right. <clears throat> Whatever. Roll on, dog. Trying to get an alibi. Yeah. So this is where I'm thinking mm-hmm. I'm calling bullshit. He also continued to acknowledge that he went to work Monday with his father and failed to tell anybody and about what had happened or what had occurred when he was hidden underneath the bed. Um, he said he saw CJ lying in the bathtub, but that he didn't pay attention to the knife in CJ's head and that he didn't check on CJ to determine whether he was alive or believed and believe that everyone in the house was dead. Well, I guess it's a good thing he didn't check on CJ. Yeah, that's true. He would have finished the job. And then he also began talking about more bullying from Armstrong, saying that Armstrong said to him, quote, I got something for you. I'm going to throw your ass on the fourth floor and I'm going to let let them kill your motherfucking ass. He also acknowledged that his his testimony didn't weren't consistent with what he told his mom and then what he told director armstrong and all of that jazz yeah i mean that pretty much shows you're guilty right there so following that you know they did their closing arguments and the defense rested 
and the jury went into deliberation. After 90 minutes, the jury rendered their verdict. They found Jesse Dotson Jr. guilty on six counts of premeditated first-degree murder for the killing of his brother, Cecil, Marissa Williams, Hollis Seals, Shindry Robertson, and then the two children, Samario and Cecil II. He was then also found guilty on three counts of attempted premeditated first-degree murder for the attacks on C.J., Cedric, and Sanaya. And then they proceeded to the penalty phase, and then after that, on October the 12th, 2010, Dotson received six death penalties. And then in November of, or November of 2010, he received an additional 120 years in prison for the attempted murders. This motherfucker was not getting out. No. Six no. first degree murder charges and six death penalties for all six victims. Wow. And, of course, there were, following that, there were, of course, appeals, because you always automatically get appeals when you yeah, when you um, get the death penalty. And that's the end of our story. There was a several, sorry, just to add, there were, you know, several appeals, you know, trying to say prosecutorial misconduct. I, I would advise everybody to go read the court documents because everything in, is in detail in there. Um, I will say, because I would like to focus on the, um, you know, the survivors, these superhuman badass children that survived this. Um, in an article published by News Channel 3 in 2017, it said that a family member that adopted these three children to take care of them, she said, quote, they're smart kids. Sanaya is on the honor roll. She did ballet. Now she's gardening with her uncles. All of those things. Cedric played basketball while he was in elementary school, and they still do that now. No. They were also asked, if you could ask your Uncle Jesse anything, what would you ask him? Cedric replied, replied, why did he do what he did and what was the cause of what he did? Um, the article went on to say that today the children still keep a picture of their mother on the wall, and it's something that CJ looks at every day. No. So, you know, they're, it also, you know, oh, they're. That gave me chills. That, I know. Literal chills. Um, They've had to. these poor babies. I like, know. It even talks about in this article, you know, that they had to overcome, I mean, obviously, so many physical and emotional challenges, but that they were adjusting well. I also want to add that I'm going to link a YouTube video. Um, I wasn't able to add it to this episode, but CJ, there is a YouTube video of him and he is, you know, being interviewed, you know, several years later and he's talking about everything. I would encourage everybody to, along with the court documents, go watch that video and read through the court documents. These kids are fucking amazing. So that wraps up part two of the horrific Lester Street murders. Thank Once again, thank you so very much for tuning in and listening and all the support and love that's been shown to us over the last several days uh i just want to reiterate i definitely encourage you to watch that youtube video and to read through the court documents there were a lot of things that i you know not wanting to intentionally leave it out but it, it's a lot to unpack and it's a lot to go through so if you want more details um, you can find the link to both the youtube video and the court case document and news articles that I got a lot of my information from. Uh, 
once again, I can't say it enough. Thank yeah, you. We really thank y'all. And, um, you know, the best way to support us, of course, is to like, share, um, follow us. Mm -hmm. um, Anna's in the process of possibly making stickers with QR codes. I don't know. Yeah, some little sticker, little sticker stickers to hand out to everybody. Yeah. And then, of course, join us next week for another episode uh, by Emily. It's my turn. It's her turn. And it's a juicy one. It's a juicy one. It's mystery. Yeah, it's a it's based on a conspiracy, so you'll not want to miss it. Exactly. And then, of course, follow us. Uh, like Emily said, rate us, share our page, uh, subscribe on any platform that you, or subscribe on all platforms if you want to. Please I see. mean, overachievers we love <laughs> in the house. And give us feedback. Give yeah. us feedback. If you want to hear something more, like if you have some input, if there's something you want us to discuss. Mm -hmm. um, also, if you have any questions about this case, feel free to email us at murdersnightout at gmail.com. And then on our next episode, we can address or answer those questions. Um, but yeah, so if you'd be so kind hearted, rate us and then subscribe to us totally free on any on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. You got anything, Emily? Nope. Thanks, guys. We love you. All right, guys. We'll keep on being uh, Dark Souls with us and tune in next week. Bye. Bye-bye.